Well, we come now to that a time in our service when we examine God's Word, when we take time out and study it uh, to uh, find the wonders and glories of the Gospel in it. Um, so we're going to be looking not at the Gospel of Mark. For those of you who might be visiting, we've been working through the Gospel of, the gospel of Mark for over a year now, and uh, we are going to end in the Gospel of Mark uh, on Easter Sunday. So we're saving the resurrection passage for Easter Sunday, and that left us with two extra weeks. Uh, and in those two weeks, uh, we're going to be looking first at the preeminence of Christ. Today, we're going to be looking at the preeminence of Christ found in Colossians uh, chapter 1, uh, verses 15 to 23. Next week, we will look at the kingship of Christ uh, from the Psalms. But today, we're going to be looking at the preeminence of Christ. Uh, the preeminence of Christ. So with that, why don't we read God's Word? You can read in your Bibles or follow along in your bulletins or on the screens. This is Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. Hear God's Word. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, once again we come to your word, and as your servant here today, I ask for your help. Lord, may you shine. Lord, forgive my own sin and use me despite me that your glory may shine. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We left the disciples in the Gospel of Mark, in our reading of the Gospel of Mark, uh, scattered. Joseph of Arimathea had taken Jesus' body and he had uh, put it in the tomb, his own personal tomb. And there Jesus was shut, and the large stone rolled in front of that tomb, dead. And we can kind of imagine what it must have been like uh, for those disciples in those moments. It would have been like a deafening silence. It would have been a moment of fear and anxiety, of deep concern and worry. Where is he? The one 
who is called the Messiah, the one who came to set us free, to deliver us from our sins. Where is he? You can imagine what it was like for the disciples in that moment. Many of us have probably gone through various crises of faith in our life, especially if you've lived for any length of time. And you've asked, where are you, Lord? Can't help but think that that's what the disciples were going through in this moment. We have many fears and anxieties, don't we? And the fact is that Christ who did rise from the dead and who who ascended into heaven and who's seated at the right hand of the Father and who is indeed coming again. Nevertheless, he isn't present with us in, in, in that physical sense. He isn't right here before us except in a spiritual sense. And that can be difficult for us. And it can cause us great anxiety and worry and concern because, Lord, where are you in my mess, in my brokenness, in my sin, in my grief? In this world that is broken by all sorts of chaos, we can, we can wonder, Lord, where are you? And create all sorts of anxiety. This morning, as we look at Colossians chapter 1, what I want us to focus on is the preeminence of Christ. That is, by the word preeminence, what does that mean? That might be, it's right there in the text, but it's a big word, especially for some of our younger ones. What does preeminent mean? It means first, <laughs> before all else. Um, so sometimes we'll talk about uh, someone or something as being the greatest of all. We might say they're preeminent one, the, the preeminent thing. Christ is the preeminent one. And this morning, or this afternoon, I keep using that. Someday I'll get over it. Um, our, our, I want us to see that our hope is in this one who is preeminent. Despite what circumstances and, and experiences you may feel at any given time, Christ is still reigning and ruling on high. He is still first. And that's what we want to see today. All things. In all things, Christ is preeminent. If my parents were here, they would be saying, uh, that's the, that's the uh, motto of my alma mater. In all things, Christ preeminent. Uh, Covenant College's alma, alma mater. It's a good motto. It's a motto that all of us should have. In all things, Christ first. So let's look at this. We'll look at this in a few few parts. First, I want us to see that Christ is the preeminent one. Just real, generally speaking, he is the preeminent one. Second, we'll look at Christ is the preeminent creator, and we'll see him as the creator, the one who is first in the creation order. Uh, Not that he was created, but that by him all things were created. Third, we're going to look at Christ as the preeminent Lord. There is no other Lord uh, that exists that is equal or greater than him. He is first There is no other king on this earth, no other spiritual power or authority that is greater. Christ is the preeminent Lord. And then finally, I want us to look at Christ as our preeminent redeemer. There is no other redeemer except for Christ. So with that, let's look at Christ, the preeminent one. The first thing that we note in our text 
here in uh, Colossians 1 is that it says he is the image of the invisible God. Now, if you are uh, familiar with Genesis 1, those words will sort of sound familiar. You'll remember back in Genesis that when God created the heavens and the earth, he created man on the sixth day and he said, I'm going to make man in my own image and likeness. And he made him that way. And we could talk all about what it means for us as image bearers of God. What does it mean that we are image bearers of God? And we could have a whole topic on that. Uh, But here, we're told that Christ is the image of the invisible God. So what does that mean? It's not the only place that Paul says this. If we were to turn to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 2. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 2, we have similar language. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, somehow cut them in half. Verse 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. John, the writer of the gospel, the disciple, wrote in that first chapter of John, in John chapter 1, verse 18, something similar as well. He said these words in John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, that is Jesus, has made him known. You see that he, that is Jesus Christ, if we were to read the whole section, has made him known. We're starting to get at what it means to be the one who is the image of the invisible God. Here he was, God, man, made flesh. He is the one who reveals to us the person or the nature, the the God of glory. We, We don't know God apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who reveals to us God himself. And we get this as well, this kind of language. One more passage in Hebrews chapter 1. In Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says this. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint. So this is is what when we say, what does it mean that Christ is the image of God? What we're saying is, here is God revealed to us. This is why in John 1, he's called the word. He's, He's the one who is declaring God to his to us, to his creation. The text goes on in Colossians 1 and says these words, he is the firstborn of all creation. It's an interesting word, um, firstborn. The word can literally mean from the womb. Uh, and this has led to some heresies in the ancient church. So there was an ancient uh, uh, heretic by the name of Arius who said that Christ was born of the divine, 
And he was, he was above humans, but he was sort of below God. He was created. He was sort of the first creation. It's an Arian heresy. Of course, out of that wrestling with that particular heresy, we get one of our great creeds that we say here, uh, the Nicene Creed, where we declare that Christ was not created. He was begotten, not made being of one substance with the Father. So when we think of this word firstborn, the emphasis here is not on his incarnation in that sort of heretical sense. So of course, he's born of Mary, but you know these things are difficult for us to get our minds around. He takes on flesh, but he's always been and he always will be. So when we hear this language of firstborn, I want to bring up some other ideas from Scripture. In Exodus Chapter 4, verses, verse 22, Israel is called God's firstborn. Well, that can't mean like he was literally, they were literally born out of God in some physical sense. What does it mean that Israel is God's firstborn? Or in another passage in Psalm 89, verse 27, God calls David his firstborn, the Messiah, his firstborn. So what does it mean to be Firstborn. In a word, it means what we're trying to say here. It is Christ who is preeminent. He is first. Hebrews sets him above even the angelic hosts of heaven. There is no other that is before him. And in Philippians 2, which we are memorizing right now, and later in the book of Revelation, we get the greatest expression of his preeminence, right? In Philippians 2, it says, yes, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, but then what? God highly exalts him and gives him the name that is above every name, that at that name, every knee should bow and every tongue confess. Every knee in heaven and on earth, even those in the grave, every knee should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In the book of Revelation, you have this picture of Jesus on his glorious throne. And in Revelation chapter 4, you have this picture of all the 24 elders, the most significant, you might say, of the saints that surround uh, this throne. They take off their crowns, and what do they do? They cast them to the ground. Why? Because there is one who is preeminent, who is first. Later in Revelation, John sees the Lord and the Lord says these words, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. There is none like me in all the earth. But the text says he's the firstborn, but he's the firstborn of creation. Okay, what does that mean? Firstborn of creation. Maybe Arius was right. (laughs) No, set that aside. What does it mean of creation? Here he was, God revealed in the flesh, in the sense that he is of creation, not that he was made, but as the eternally begotten Son of God, he took on flesh. He took on our substance to reveal himself, the preeminent one, the firstborn, to say, I am he. There is no other. 
In other words, he took on flesh to show us God. John 1, 1 expresses this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He took on our flesh, became like us. Last week, we left off uh, reflecting on Jesus on the cross and Jesus in the tomb. And in there, there, in that picture of his death and his humiliation, we have no greater expression of the humanity of Jesus, that he was flesh and blood, that he bled and died. As I said earlier, it's difficult for us to imagine the deafening silence of the death after the agony of Jesus' crying out his last Nothing from Jesus. You had to wonder if they they thought, are these authorities, the Roman authorities, are these principalities, are they greater than Jesus Christ? Are they greater than this word of God? Are they greater than this one who claimed to be the Messiah? You had to, you, you, you must have wondered if they thought that, they felt that. While we live on this side of the resurrection, absent of the physical presence of Jesus, I think sometimes we can wonder if indeed there are authorities and principalities greater than Christ. And so our concerns actually echo a lot of the concerns that the Colossian church had. I want to, I want to read just a little bit about the Colossian church here. Um, now there's some debate. There was, there was false teaching that was going on in Colossae. We don't know exactly what that teaching is. There's lots of debate around exactly what that teaching is. And some of, it, some of it, I believe, is lost to history. We won't know. But I think we can get at some of it. Um, but they had great anxiety and concern. One scholar said this about not just the church in Colossae, but about the Hellenistic world and the people within that, that, that context. And I want to read it because it strikes me as very similar to often how I think we experience the world around us today. So one thing might be a little different, that they were uh, generally preoccupied with spiritual beings. Uh, and so they had a tendency to worship angels. That could have been part of their issue. Um, but this is this is a little bit about the sort of Hellenistic culture in which they lived. One scholar said, it seemed that the universe in all its vastness and intricacy was beyond human comprehension or control, being governed instead by a host of wrathful gods and indifferent supernatural powers. That might be a little different than us. We might not have a pantheon that we think is kind of pulling the strings. But it goes on and he says, human beings could do little more than struggle against the relentless tide of fate. I, 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 that, that sounds about where a lot of people are at, right? There, there's powers in the world, fate, um, karma, different, different things that sort of move the strings of the world. He goes on and he says, for them, personal and material insecurity not to mention moral and spiritual indeterminacy, meaning (laughs) there's all sorts of moral uh, codes and you can follow different ones. Uh, So there's a sort of lack of stability in terms of moral life. This is what characterized the human condition and it often amounted 
to little more than a fruitless search for meaning, meaning that ends with death and oblivion. You could, you could write that pretty much about our modern context. He went on and he said, in response to this unsettled state of affairs, mortals sought some understanding of and access to the supernatural powers that controlled their lives, often through intermediary demonic beings or through mystical experiences. You can kind of get the picture. People striving to make sense of the world around them, uncertain about how to live, uncertain how to access God. All they saw before them was chaos and death. And they're like, what can I do? And so there was all sorts of anxiety and fears that drove them. Scholar went on to say the false teachers were appealing to spiritual beings, visions, and rules to find security in this very uncertain universe. And they questioned the sufficiency of Christ. Friends, is Christ sufficient? Of course, the answer to that is yes. I was struck by the similarity to our own anxieties. We are awash in seas of uncertainty. We are all looking for security and comfort and fulfillment. We know our own brokenness. We want some way out. And we'll take whatever path we can find. But Paul is saying, those things through which you look for, for, for fulfillment cannot fill you up. They are not sufficient. Rather, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. He is the preeminent one. He is the preeminent one. This brings me to my second point, Christ the preeminent creator. That was just Christ's preeminence in general, but I want to look briefly at his preeminence as creator. The text highlights both his preeminence as the creator and his preeminence as the redeemer. We'll save the redeemer part for a little bit, but this is sort of two aspects of of, of Christ. Paul here is expressing the truth that is expressed in Revelation that Christ is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. But right now I just want to focus on Christ as creator. Paul says, for by him all things were created. But did you catch this? Not just the visible things, not just the things that we see. Here it says, for by him all things were created. Things in heaven, visible, heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All things. In other words, there is nothing in heaven or on earth that does not find its existence apart from him. Paul particularly highlights the creation of powers and authorities. It's interesting. Some scholars ask the question, when he talks about powers and authorities, is he talking about Rome? Is he talking about the powers of the day, the various political powers and social powers? Yes, partially. But we also know that in his letter to the Ephesians, that he talks about the principalities and powers being those things that are spiritual, that are unseen. 
And so I, I think these two things are interrelated. They're, they're connected. It's not an either or. All authorities, any authority, whether in heaven or on earth, thrones both physical and spiritual, all things were made by him and made for him. Nothing exists that, that is not his. In Genesis 1, you have the creation account. And when I'm teaching on Genesis 1, I like to point out some of the characteristics of it. And one of the characteristics is you have uh, the kingdoms that are being populated with kings. And so we're told that, you know, the day and the night exist, but that the sun, the moon, and the stars were created to do what? To have dominion, to rule over the night and over the day and over the night. Same with the, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. They, they had their kingdoms. Mankind, who was set as God's image bearers, they were called to rule, and nevertheless, they were created. They were not the creator. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning, and all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. We aren't told in Scripture how the angelic beings were created, but here in Colossians 1, we're told in no uncertain terms that they also were created by them. Let's go back to that upper room or wherever the disciples are hanging out at this moment as they were in that silence of the tomb. They couldn't help but wonder at the power of Rome and at the power of the religious authorities. And in their minds at that moment... I imagine that they thought there was no greater power on earth than Caesar himself. Can't help but wonder if they thought that. Adam and Eve in the garden, I think they wondered this too. When the serpent came and enticed them with knowledge and wisdom, they probably started to wonder, maybe there's a greater power. Maybe there's a greater authority. Maybe that authority could even be me. Maybe God wasn't preeminent. Maybe Christ wasn't preeminent. And it's that doubt, that, that seed that enters into our hearts and lives that moves us towards worshiping not God, but worshiping all sorts of created things. It's a thing to say, Maybe Christ isn't the ultimate authority. Maybe I can define what authority looks like. Maybe I worship something here and I follow an earthly authority, so to speak. Or maybe I become the arbiter of all things true. You see, when we start to doubt that Christ is the one with all authority, we start to move towards making the world, the things of this earth, have more power than they do. That's why in Romans 1, you have that great passage talks about how we turn from the creator and worship the creation rather than the creator. But Paul's saying here, all things were created through him. But notice that he changes from all things were created by him to all things were created through him and that all things are created for him. 
That's an interesting change. Why would, why would the writer of Colossians say that? Why would he say by and through? Those two words seem very similar. All things were created by him, and then all things were created through him. I, I don't quite understand what's going on there, but uh, I think um, that's what we might say to ourselves. But what I think is going on is that he's saying, actually, all things do come from him. He's the, the cause. He's the one by the, by the power of his word creates all things. But all things are through him, meaning all things are dependent on him. You and I are dependent on Christ. Our very existence relies on Him. He is the preeminent one. But Paul takes it a step farther. He not only says that all of creation is created by Him, that He makes all things, that all things are created through Him, that in some sense all things exist through Him, but not only that, but He created all things for Him. Christ, the Creator's preeminence, means that everything in heaven and on earth was made for His glory. That's why Paul will say in Philippians that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, on heaven and on earth and under the earth, to the glory of God the Father. Friends, today you're gathered here to worship not just another power, whether lesser or greater, than other powers in the world. You are here gathered as creatures made with the express purpose of glorifying the preeminent creator king who sits at the right hand of his heavenly father and who will return. And he's coming again and every knee will bow. He is the preeminent one first. And I have to be honest, this may be terrifying reality for you. Some of you, you might be sitting there thinking, that is the most terrifying truth, Rob, to realize that I exist by him and through him and for him. It's terrifying because it means that everything I do that is in opposition to my creator means I'm culpable and guilty of rebellion against him. Yes. In popular myth, one of our greatest fears that we have as, as people is that artificial intelligence will take over the rise of the machine. I, you can't go click through Netflix without seeing at least one video that has to do with the rise of the machine. That's just part of it. Back in the 1960s, uh, there was a, uh, a filmmaker named Stanley Kubrick who wrote, who, who, who made a movie called 2001 A Space Odyssey. Maybe some of you have seen it. And you'll remember in that story, if, if, or in that movie, if you've, if you've watched it, um, that at one point, uh, the machine, the computer of this voyage, actually kills off the, the crew members because they might inhibit the mission from moving forward. And there's this sort of uh, fight that uh, ensues between one of the crew, the last remaining crew member, and Hal, the computer uh, who is sentient. And that, this is just one of our greatest fears, right? That, that those things that we create will rebel against us. Uh, um, Mary Shelley's uh, Frankenstein, right? There's the classic work that, that the monster will rise up and destroy its creator. Ir- ironically, that's exactly what we do. We rise up against our creator. But the thing about that is, is our God does not fear. He's not like us. He has all power and authority 
And He is not like us. While we might fear our creations rising against us, we also, in reality, ought to fear more significantly coming face to face with our Maker. That can be a terrifying thing. But let me suggest to you that there's actually great comfort in this as well. In knowing that he's the creator and sustainer of all. Friends, what a comfort it is to know that we are not left to fate or to the whims of a godless world, but that our existence is at the command of Jesus. What a comfort it is to know that he rules and reigns on high and that his creation was not just made by him and sustained through him, but that it is for him and that we are made with purpose and dignity, that we were given in that garden good work to do. And that as his image bearer, we reflect our God. We should find comfort in that. And even more so as we consider that we are new creations. Paul tells us in Philippians or in Ephesians 2.10 that we have been created for good works. Not only that, but the Lord who created us for good works has prepared them beforehand that we might walk in them. There's great comfort knowing that as we are anxious about the world around us, we can remind ourselves, no, Christ still reigns on a high and I am his and he is mine and I can, I can trust him that he will provide for my every need. This is comfort in a chaotic world to be reminded that while sin has certainly created chaos, Christ continues to rule and overrule our hearts. This brings me to my third, very briefly, uh, point, Christ is the preeminent Lord. He's not only the creator and sustainer of all things, but he is Lord over all. We see this in our text in two ways, both in his reconciling all things to himself and in his lordship over us as his church. Christ is the preeminent Lord, reconciling all things to himself, all the powers and principalities of this world that rage and rebellion against our Lord will be brought low. Right? Psalm 2. The Lord, the, the nations rage and plot in vain. The Lord sits on high and sends his son. That's Psalm 2. You can go read it. Philippians 2. Every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess. Revelation in its detail uh, can be a difficult book to interpret. But as you step back and from its details, what you see is this grand cosmic story of Christ the Lord. The whole book of Revelation, you can sum up as Christ, the Lamb who is slain, is Lord. And he brings all things in subjection to him. All things, whether by grace or by his might and power, all things come in subjection to him. He is Lord. And we see this same grand reconciling vision of Christ, the preeminent Lord, here in Colossians 1. In verse 16, it says this, He describes the creation of authorities and principalities. And of course, I think he's alluding to his own authority. And the reason I think that is because in verse 20, he says, all things were created by him and for him, including authorities and principalities, verse 16. But then in verse 20, it says uh, these words, 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things. All those things that he made, all the powers, even the ones that are in rebellion to him, all things will be reconciled to him. And when he says all things, I think we can take comfort in that. And all the turmoil of our world with all the fears that we might have of political pressure and oppression of the church by the state. Some of you may fear that sort of thing. You get anxious every time the government makes a new law. You can remind yourself that Christ reigns, that he rules on high. Even as Christians face imprisonment and death across the land, across the world, we can be reminded that Christ reigns, that he is the preeminent Lord. But he's not only the Lord of all things in some general sense, in a special and significant sense, he rules over us, his church. Here in verse 18, Paul says, he is the head of the body. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And as our Lord, we are united to him, not just in his suffering, but in his resurrection. And what are the implications for us that he is the preeminent Lord of the church? Well, here's some good news. It means we certainly have eternal life. As our Lord, as the firstborn of creation, as the one who was raised from the dead, as the, as the one who, who is up from the grave, right? We can find confidence in that as we look forward to that. We can have confidence that we are born again to a living hope in the resurrection because Jesus is Lord over death itself. It means that we have life now to live. We have power to live. We have, we have the grace of the Lord by his Holy Spirit to live as becomes the follower of Christ. He's granted to us all that we need for life and godliness, as Peter says. The King of glory, the Lord preeminent, grants to us all things. Grant. An old English word rooted in a Latin word, which means he entrusts or guarantees to us. Gives it to us. It's ours. The preeminent Lord guarantees, guarantees to us and entrusts to us the very power of God to live new lives. Lives pleasing and acceptable to him. One of the greatest struggles I think we have as believers is trusting in the provision of God by his spirit to be able to put off sin and to walk in newness of life. Every Christian I have ever come into contact with that I've had any length of conversation with says, I struggle to believe that I can overcome my sin. I struggle to believe that I can overcome my sin. Are you there? When faced with overwhelming temptation or sinful desire, we give in because we think there is no way that we cannot. The power and control that that sin has over our life seems crushing. And here's, here's the hope. You, you can't overcome. Not, not in and of yourself. You cannot overcome. But the Lord has granted to you his divine power for godliness. He's given all that you need. And he calls us not to trust in our own strength, but to trust in him, the preeminent Lord. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For what? 
For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Finally, I'm going to close. Christ is the preeminent redeemer. Christ is reconciling all things to himself. But notice the means of his reconciling power. Did you see it there? He says in verse 20, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. As we wonder at the preeminence of Christ today, there is nothing more wonderful than this. He made peace through his blood. Of course, the tragic reason for that peacemaking was uh, here portrayed for us. We were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. We were rebellious. We were alienated from him. Though we knew God, we didn't honor him as God. We exchanged the immortal for the mortal. Claiming to be wise, we became fools. But Paul reminds us here in Colossians that there is one who is preeminent, who is a redeemer, who has reconciled you to himself in his body by his death. With this, he is presenting us as holy and blameless and above reproach. The preeminent Lord of glory, friends, died for you. The one who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one through and by and for whom all things were made, the one who has all authority and power, in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, the one before whom every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. He, this Lord of glory, this preeminent one, the Alpha and the Omega, died for you. And there's one call. He said, you who are hostile in mind. He said, I've died for you, and I'm going to present you as holy and blameless and above, above reproach. Friends, this means that when you are presented before the living God, this preeminent one, he's going to look at you, and he's going to see Jesus, and there will be no more shame, no more guilt, no more sorrow over the things that we've done. We are going to be presented blameless. And there's one call for you. Paul says, don't shift your hope. Friends, there's no other hope, no other authority, nothing in the world that you can fill, that can fill you and satisfy you and cover your shame, nothing but the blood of our Savior who made peace for us, the preeminent one. Don't. Don't run to any other thing. Run to him, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is preeminent. Let's pray.